Hi, my name is Rob Stuckey, and I'm here to share with you some insights I've gleaned from living in many cultures and facing a wide array of life's challenges. Among other things, I've been a teacher, an artist, an interpreter, a preacher, and a writer on five continents and in multiple languages. I earned degrees in art and in theology from Yale University. Lived and studied under the direct tutelage of a Hindu guru for nearly 10 years, was an Episcopal priest for 16 years, and have worked with the Muslim community in bridge building for decades. I was also a medical interpreter and cultural competency advocate at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for 10 years. I was married to a woman from a Jewish family for 26 years, and since 2005, I've been married to a woman from a Spanish Catholic family. At this point, I'm no longer affiliated with any particular institution. I prefer to focus on the commonalities that unite us rather than on the institutional justification or promotion of our differences. My life experience has taught me a lot. And it's fed a lifelong enjoyment of sharing what I learned with anyone interested in the hopes they might find something useful in it for their own life's journey. I don't claim any absolute authority other than that of my own experience. Nor do I pretend to offer you solutions to your problems. That's something for you to figure out for yourself. The views expressed in this podcast are unapologetically my own. I just hope they may be useful to you in your own exploration and process. So here we go. Welcome to my podcast. Have you ever wondered, is the failure to recognize the faith of others a failure to recognize the presence of God? We're living in a time of increasing anti-intellectualism. Politicians and supposed leaders openly promote ignorance by peddling misinformation and outright lies that appeal to our lowest common denominators and our basest fears and insecurities. The apparent triumph of a them-against-us mentality of social polarization and the demonization of those who differ from us, whomever we may be, is the red meat that feeds authoritarian rule and social dysfunction and willful ignorance keeps it going. One of the primary victims of the steady degeneration of our education system over the last 50 years has been our critical and associative thinking skills. This mental atrophy leads to apathy and feeds our ignorance, which is all essential to the success of dictatorship. This isn't merely a social political phenomenon. It also kills faith. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the rise of religious conservatism. Although other than the status quo, what precisely is being conserved is seriously in question. <clears throat> Sadly, some religious enthusiasts proudly proclaim that they live by faith. Well, well and good, congratulations. But they seem to believe that intellect and critical thought are a true believer's enemies and are antithetical to the faith they think they live by. They appear to be incapable or at least unwilling to recognize the validity of any similarity of feeling or dynamic between their own experience 
and the experience of those who identify with a different faith tradition, even within the same institutionally religious category, much less those who have no faith tradition at all. Too often their theological certitude isn't applied to any critical analysis of situations that threaten that blessed assurance of well-being that their belief system promises them. For example, despite the widespread insistence on an omnipresent higher power, take the long religious history of ostracizing non-believers, be they Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever, the list goes on and on. All the founders and leading saints of all major traditions proclaim the oneness of God or of absolute consciousness. And yet many of their followers arrogantly and erroneously insist that that divine presence can only be properly experienced or discovered through their particular chosen path. A minimal application of logic to the matter makes it obvious that such exclusion directly contradicts the claim of divine omnipresence. If God or consciousness, by whatever name we may call that absolute, is in fact omnipresent, then by definition, it cannot be limited to anyone's preferences nor excluded from anything or anyone who differs from them. To offer a specific case in point, the Abrahamic triad of religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is fond of citing Genesis and its story of the creation of humankind as foundational to our self-understanding, our relationship to the natural world, even our social order. And yet all three traditions in practice tend to overlook the implications of one of the key elements of that story. Despite Genesis' claim that God created us male and female in God's own image and likeness and saw that it was good, the clergy in all three traditions tend to insist on referring to the deity in exclusively masculine terms. They infer male superiority over females from that, and then go on to proclaim that it's presumptuous and even blasphemous for us to aspire to oneness with God. Christians in particular have deduced that we're all fundamentally sinful and fallen because Eve, chose to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and shared that fruit with Adam. Yet the text clearly implies that we are expressions of and participants in divinity. And it merely indicates that acquiring the knowledge of good and evil has consequences. Not that it's wrong. This cognitive dissonance is willingly glossed over without so much as a nod to digging deeper into the mystery of our relationship with the divine or into the inherently multi-layered symbolism of the scriptural text. A lot of theological ink has been spilled on the notion that to aspire to oneness with the absolute is to commit the sin of hubris. Religious authorities often profess that to make such a claim is a matter of spiritual pride that equates the ego with the Godhead and tries to establish by extension the claimant's superiority over others, which is clearly an unacceptable premise. But this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's meant by oneness. 
The flawed logic of this theological argument is the assumption that the ego is who we are. And that it's even possible for the ego to experience true oneness with the divine, much less with anyone else. The very nature of the ego is to see itself as separate from others, an individual in my own right. Whereas the nature of the divine is infinite, unitive, and all-inclusive. Not only that, that unitive experience by definition is not competitive nor a cause for pride. A Zen cartoon points this out with a wonderful drawing of a novice sitting in meditation and a caption saying, I'm more one than anyone. <laughs> if we're all created in God's image and likeness, no individual can be more one with God than another. Because that unity dwells intrinsically within all of us in equal measure by virtue of our very existence. The only differentiating factor is the degree to which any individual is aware of his or her true nature in a given moment and cooperates with it. That requires transcending the confines of their ego. If the saints and mystics are to be believed, transcending our egos is the necessary precondition for that direct, humbly unitive experience of our divine origin. Well, as creatures of habit, all of us are prone to attachment to whatever our experience teaches us. If we weren't, we couldn't learn anything. We'd have to live eternally from square one, repeatedly burning our hands in the fire and constantly rediscovering how to avoid the hurt in order to make the fire useful. Once we've learned a lesson, we tend to hold on to it storing it in our experiential memory bank as essential cumulative data that determine our ability to see and embrace the truth. I'm reminded of the brilliant Bill Murray film, Groundhog Day, where he keeps making blunders and then adding corrective pieces of understanding to his collection so he can win over the girl he has a crush on. Unfortunately, by force of habit, we naturally become attached to the models we create of the way it's supposed to be. And the more attached and complacent we become, the more difficult it is for us to receive or even perceive data that challenges or disagrees with our cherished familiar preferences. Moreover, our attachments to comfort and familiarity tend to dominate our openness to anything new. But no major advance in human history has ever been made by rigidly holding on to the familiar status quo. For the nature of nature itself is constant change, not stasis. <clears throat> Paradigm shifts are an essential part of our evolutionary process. This is as true in matters of spiritual understanding as in any other. Consequently, the forces of what is called conservatism and fundamentalism, rather than conserving what is of fundamental importance to our collective well-being, tend to be fear-driven attachments to just preserving the familiarity of the status quo, no matter how dysfunctional it may have become. Fortunately, truth does not depend on our believing it. And as a witty bumper sticker put it once, denial is not a river in Egypt. 
Our denial of the data that disagrees with our preferences doesn't disprove the truths we find uncomfortable, inconvenient, or threatening. As too many anti-vaxxers have discovered when being intubated for COVID-19 and only belatedly regretting their choice not to be vaccinated. In matters of faith, humanity might be divided into a number of basic collectives. Those who profess belief in and pledge allegiance to a specific deity or faith tradition. Those who deny the existence of any higher power or authority and see all institutional expressions of faith as wrongheaded and even destructive. And then what appears to be a growing number of people who, though legitimately disillusioned with what they deem the failures and flaws of institutional religion, do intuit the reality of some higher power. And they long to be able to connect with it and understand it better. So this fact brings us to examine more deeply the question, does religious belief and practice effectively promote and empower that connection and understanding? If so, how and why? If not, how and why not? Rather than devolving into fruitless dueling theologies over whose beliefs are right or better, it's more helpful to consider the issue phenomenologically. Are there beliefs and practices that show up in one form or another in all traditions? Is there an underlying experiential dynamic in them that suggests a common resonance or source? Are we programmed for transcendental experience? Is such experience of recognizable value or benefit to our quality of living? What, if anything, can we do to elicit it? And importantly, could there be more than one way to do so? The answer to all these questions requires the application of associative and critical thinking skills in order to be able to recognize any similarities between traditions. Our willingness and ability to learn to listen more deeply to ourselves and each other is often a determining factor in our success or failure at recognition of what we actually have in common. The discovery that what unites us far outweighs what separates us. If we look at the writings of and about the great mystics of all traditions, they're unanimous in their insistence that there is an effulgent experience beyond all name and form whose very nature is both ecstatic and revelatory. It's an experience that erases all sense of separateness and fills the experiencer with a blissful sense of union, with a higher power, with oneself, and with everyone and everything. Moreover, these sages insist that this unit of state, which is discerned in the silence of the heart, is the birthright of us all. It's innately available to each of us. It's not some rarefied event only granted to a select few. The only thing that prevents us from experiencing it is our own unconsciousness, our lack of awareness, our inattentiveness and our ego attachment to our limited identities. 
Paradoxically, language itself can be both a vehicle and an impediment to that unit of experience. Having been an interpreter for over 50 years, I'm keenly aware of the challenges of accurately rendering what's said in or written in one language into another. Unquestionably, there are some words and expressions in one language that simply don't have an exact equivalent in another. And in such cases, the interpreter is forced to look beyond literalism to find an experiential counterpart whenever possible or explain the cultural reasons why one might not exist. How, for example, can you describe an Inuit's experience of 47 kinds of snow to someone who's never left the tropics or even seen snow and touched it? Language plays a key role in every spiritual tradition as a vehicle that points us toward that ultimate unit of experience. The regular use of what may be deemed sacred language or God talk is a form of invocative memory programming. It's believed to elicit and facilitate transcendental experience. Reinforcing that collective memory bank makes repeatedly accessing that experience easier and more consistent. I mean, think just for a second about a typical Christian ceremony that begins with, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an invocation to put us all in a place of remembrance. When in the 1979 revision of the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer was first published, there was an uproar among traditionalists pretty much like the Roman Catholic upset following the Second Vatican Council's mandate for mass to be said in the vernacular rather than in the centuries-old Tridentine Latin. At the heart of the controversy was the fear that messing with the liturgical language was tantamount to messing with people's experience of God because the latter was inevitably shaped by and associated with the former. Now, 44 years later, the Episcopal Church has initiated another of its periodic revisions to make the language of prayer and worship more inclusive. They consider this necessary because, in fact, our experience of the divine cannot be static, nor can the way we interpret it, since the nature of that divinity is a constant interplay of polarities. The cyclical nature of life, including the life of institutions, goes from birth to growth, to stability, to decline, and to death, followed by rebirth and a new cycle. The creative tension between the deep resonance of millennial rites and rituals, on the one hand, and the need for forms of expression that connect and speak to contemporary life and experience on the other, is an ongoing and necessary part of that cycle. Viewed through the long lens of history, there are clearly recurring patterns of spiritual activity and reform. Some are triggered by demographic, sociopolitical, or even ecological shifts, and responding to them may provoke new changes. Nevertheless, the human longing for that unit of experience continually resurfaces to express itself in art, architecture, music, literature, and the sciences 
no matter what the time or place. Consider, for example, the rapid spread of Christianity throughout the trade routes of the Roman Empire and the Silk Road in its first three or four centuries. It's very similar to the spread of Buddhism centuries before and Islam five centuries later. Then with the fall of Rome, there was a flourishing of Western monasticism as the repository of knowledge and the proxy training ground of leadership. The same happened with Buddhism. This filled the vacuum of cohesive imperial government. There was an enormous cultural cross-fertilization sown by the ebb and flow of barbarian invasions and then the rise of Christian feudal states in Western Europe, vying with the spread of Islam across Byzantium, the Maghreb and the entire Iberian Peninsula. Then there was a consolidation of Christian fiefdoms into nations, initially dependent upon, but gradually in competition with the church for their validation and survival. Then came the rise of humanism and the quantum leap in technology and science during the Renaissance and the simultaneous flourishing of mysticism, since both science and mysticism are fiercely independent of the church's attempts at doctrinal control. This in turn fed the flowering of the age of reason and the 18th century enlightenment with the great awakening of popular piety, the long decline of colonialism and the increasing integration of cultures. With each of these sea changes, every three to 500 years, there's been a major shift in consciousness, major leaps in our understanding and our knowledge of ourselves, and indeed of the universe in which we live. There've also been commensurate shifts in our understanding of the divine. These shifts are visible in both the content and technologies of our creative expression. And yet the longing for union has remained a constant throughout. To fail to recognize that condemns us to wander endlessly in our misperceptions and negative judgments of difference, never attaining the blissful union we innately seek. Theologically speaking, that's not only a terrible loss for us, it's an insult to the singular consciousness of which we are all a manifestation. The many faith traditions of the human race over millennia have each offered us insights into that ultimate reality. Years ago on my first trip to India, I had a powerful experience of how the Christian rite of communion, for example, was in fact transcultural. I was sitting there in a temple and in the sanctuary, there was a larger than life-size statue of a saint on the equivalent of an altar. He was surrounded by brass oil lamps and decorated with fresh flowers. Incense filled the air with aromatic clouds. There was a heavily chased silver railing separating the sanctuary from the nave of the temple very much like a communion rail separating a high altar in a Catholic church. A Brahmin priest who had earlier bathed the statue with certain sacred elements and collected the runoff, which was now believed to be supercharged with the saint's energy, was ladling out this prasad, this sacred ambrosia, to the eager devotees, who all came to the rail with outstretched right hands, palm up, 
and consumed their sip of the substance, made a gesture of obeisance with palms folded and a nod of the head, and left feeling blessed. The main difference between this and a mass was that it was not preceded by a long liturgy, and the decorum of the faithful lining up in single file for their blessing was abandoned in favor of a general rush to the rail with outstretched hands jostling for their respective portion of prasad containing the real presence of the saint. The blessing was the immediate consequence of imbibing the sacred substance. The only experiential difference between the temple and mass was that the Indians seemed more joyful in their reverence than the typically sober-looking Christian after communion. Too often, we presume to dismiss the immense contribution to our own experience and understanding that can be derived from the merits of a tradition other than our own. If we refuse to learn of its riches and insights, or assume that to experience our alleged oneness merely requires uniformity of belief and practice, mistaking sameness for oneness, we do ourselves and each other a grave disservice. The omnipotence of consciousness is apparent in its infinite creativity, manifesting the entire universe in all its complexity from that single energy of consciousness without in any way compromising or diminishing it. We sometimes see ourselves as a microcosm of the universe, and yet in reality, from the standpoint of perception, the entire universe and all our perceptions of it exist within us. To refuse to even perceive that treasure of multiplicity, as if our differences were anathema, denies us the opportunity to experience ourselves and each other as fully as consciousness allows and demands. It's the ultimate blasphemy and self-betrayal. If you have questions, feedback, or experiences you'd like to share on the contents of this podcast or the practices described in it, feel free to send them to haveyoueverwondered144 at gmail.com. I'd like to be responsive to the public and share it in future episodes. You can always listen again to the chapters of your choice wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure and share them with your friends. I look forward to hearing from you. Ciao.